Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If there was going to be something written on my gravestone that epitomized what I, how I live to my, like to live my life, it's, you know, he, he lived a, a sort of a unique and interesting life. I think that's really something I strive for. I'm scared of just leading a unfulfilled, ordinary life. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 78 with Sean Conway. Sean is an ultra-endurance athlete who's keen to champion the athletic side of the adventure world. He was born in Zimbabwe and, as he'll tell you, his childhood was spent in the bush chasing elephants out of the garden. Sean has swum the length of Britain, cycled across Europe and came second in the infamous cheese rolling competition. All of this while breaking world records and pushing himself to his physical limit. In this episode, Sean explains how he strives to lead a unique and interesting life, plus have enough stories to eventually bore the grandchildren. Before we begin, once again I'd like to point you towards the Martin Ram Foundation, who are our charitable partner for this season. They're an incredible organisation that enable people to get out into the hills, the mountains, and to find and live a life of adventure. It's an initiative very close to my heart, and I'd be incredibly grateful if you were able to support their work. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, or maybe if you aren't, please leave us an honest review and a rating on iTunes, if that's where you're listening. Those reviews really help us with visibility, which brings more people into the adventure fold. Finally, the podcast is produced alongside Sidetrack Magazine, our spiritual sister publication. So for a written and photographic adventure fix, head to sidetrack.com. Okay, over to Sean Conway. The logical place to start, as is always the case, is um, who are you and where do you come from and what do you do? <laughs> well, two of those uh, questions are quite easy to answer. Who am I? I'm Sean Conway. Um, what do I do? I'm so I'm an ultra endurance adventure athlete. I think is kind of what I do really. The word athlete for me is important, but I get classed as an adventurer because. And I never correct people because I guess it makes sense. People kind of understand what you are when you say that. But for me, I'm more on the athletic side of things. Uh, where I'm from, well, so I have four passports, technically. Well, I have the ability to have four passports. I was born in Zimbabwe. I grew up in South Africa. I uh, live in Wales and I have done, well, I've lived in the UK for 20 years, but my family's Irish. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a mixture. Bit of a mixture. Yeah, that's a it's a smorgasbord of identities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
Why were you born in Zimbabwe? So my family from Ireland, when Ireland was sort of going through the famine, well, a few couple a decade after that probably, um, just wanted work, so jumped on a ferry and went to Africa, which was what a lot of sort of Irish people did and and British people as well um, back in the sort of the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Went to Africa and just started working out there because it was sort of promoted here in the UK and in Ireland as just sort of this amazing place with amazing people and amazing weather. Um, and so that's what we that's what we did pretty much. Uh, my family moved from Ireland to Africa on my dad's side and did the same on my mum's side to to Africa. And then they sort of met. And then a couple of generations later, um, I came along as a little ginger Zimbabwean, which uh, in itself is pretty rare, which I quite like. <laughs> So can you remember it? When did you move to South Africa? Oh, yeah. So a lot of my family are still in Zimbabwe now. Um, I moved when I was two, I think, to South Africa and then spent the rest of my childhood in South Africa. Um, But, you know, it's just over the border. So we'd go on holidays back to Zim the whole time. And uh, a lot of my family did have to move uh, in the early 2000s for political reasons. uh, but a few stayed and a few sort of stuck it out there and, you know, just, you know, li- living the life. If you can, if you can live, if you can get Africa right, living there is amazing. It really gets in your blood. You know, if you can sort of find a way of not being in an area that's got too much crime and you can find a job that's, that's fulfilling. Um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing, you know. So, uh, yeah, a few of my cousins are, are living the dream in Zim still, <laughs> which is, uh, makes me jealous. Although I have to say, I, I do quite like living in Wales. Um, I married a Welsh girl and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, I love it. I love it, you know. So given that I'm from Grimsby and most of my family are from Grimsby, <laughs> what is life like in South Africa and Zimbabwe? Well, for me, it was, it was very different even to normal Zimbabweans because my dad is a rhino and elephant conservationist. And he has been his entire life. So, you know, his job was writing big rhino and elephant strategies to stop poaching, to, you know, f- make sure fence lines were sort of up to scratch um, and breeding and you know, trying to get the breeding population up and transporting rhinos to different reserves when they sort of overpopulate a certain area. Um, so I lived in the middle of big game parks, big, huge wildlife game reserves, we call them. Um, and that was my life, you know, just living on the banks of the Zambezi river, having, having elephants in the garden and which sounds fun, but by the 10th time when they've drunk all the water out your paddling pool, it kind of gets annoying, you know? (laughs) I was about to say, how can you settle for anything other than that? But maybe it's not that simple. Well, you know, I, I think I'm, I've always been inquisitive in life and I find I thrive on new environments, which is maybe why I've, I do adventure sports because, you know, every, everything I do, you're in a different environment, the weather's slightly different. Um, and, and I guess, you know, wherever I go, whatever I do, I kind of sort of look for the, the best in it. Um, and I just, I've moved a lot. I'm probably not going to move again. I'm 40 now. Just bought my first house. <laughs> it's a bungalow as well, so I don't even have to move until I'm 100. It's great. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's 
I loved that I had my African upbringing, um, and I love that it's in my you know in my family and it's in my history and it's there to show my son. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd move back. You know, I'm not sure I'd move back at the moment. I love Wales. I love the UK. This you know Britain is the best island in the world with unlimited possibilities and potential. You know, if you want to do anything in in the UK, it's almost possible to do anything really. Like genuinely, if you want to, like a, a, a company that I used to work with used to, they decided they wanted to make watches using parts from Spitfires that crashed in World War Two. <laughs> I mean, how niche is that? But you can do it here. You know, imagine you're in the middle of Zimbabwe and say, oh, I've got this idea. And people are like, well, where are you going to find these Spitfires, mate? <laughs> I mean, you could do it, of course. You know, nothing's impossible. But, you know, just the, I love the UK for the ability to be able to do anything you want really whether it's business hobbies you know traveling um there's a network of people you're earning pounds which is very powerful generally uh, in the world uh, you're in the middle of the world and the maps are getting around places is good um and people are people are clever you know there's there's not that people aren't clever anywhere else but like we we all sort of living in this, such an amazing environment i believe in in the uk that i think we sometimes take for granted really I, I genuinely think we do and it's only when i go back to africa do i realize just how lucky i am bringing up a son here who's going to have access to good education um for free you know whereas lots of africa you've got to pay through the roof just to go to a good school um and and the universities here are amazing and the opportunities are great so um yeah so i'm definitely in, in wales in my bungalow for, for the long haul but I, i'll definitely dip in and out of africa because it's in my blood and I'd love to show my, my son um, what it was like for daddy growing up in the bush. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to hear you say that, because I think there's so much kind of, not anti-British, but there's kind of a bit of a sorrowful sentiment around it all at the minute with everything that's going on, regardless of which side of the political line you sit on. It doesn't feel like it's the finest time ever to be a British citizen or resident and I'm I'm with you. I think you know it's an it's a great place to be, and it's you know a land of opportunity. Yeah, mm. absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and you know the the problem is, I think genuinely, people do think Britain's great, but the problem is those stories don't sell newspapers. So, you know, I think who Russell Howard he put it really perfectly once on one of his his good news episodes. He's like. It's the voices of the people at the end. Those are the people that want to shout. The people's on each side of it. And on the one side, there's the voices going, oh my God, the world's doomed. Someone's got a button to blow up the whole world with nuclear war. And then on the other side, the voices go, oh my God, what are we going to call female fishermen? And then, you know, actually, everyone in the middle, which is like 95% of us, we don't want to shout. We don't have the voice because we don't care. We just want to get on with our lives and make friends and go on holiday and make sure our kids do well at school and don't get bullied. And, you know, that's the bulk of the world. But the problem is you only hear about the edges who, because they're the ones who want to shout about it. And I think, genuinely, I think, and that happens with social media. And I, I get really annoyed because, you know, some of my friends will go, I, I had this idea to stand up paddleboard from A to B. And then oh, people said I wouldn't do it and I was going to die. And then I went on to that post uh where they said they were going to do it and there was like 
500 people who said, oh my God, it's amazing. You're going to win. This is brilliant. I keep going. If you need support, I'll sort you out. And there was three people who maybe said, oh mate, you're an idiot. You know, you're going to die because of this. And it's just, and those are the, and, and those are the things that we focus on because it's a good story. Of course it's a good story. Cause, oh, well, I was going to do this because I'll die. You know, everyone said I was going to die, but I did it anyway. And I'm like, actually, did everyone say you were going to die? I think maybe like three out of 500 said you were going to die. Not to say that that's good, but genuinely, I think we do tend to focus a lot and put energy into like the wrong stuff, I think. so. To give people context, what did you do with your life after you finished school and Right, so I was into photography from an early age, probably around 13, 14, loved it, just breathed it, anything photography related I was doing. And then it was only about six months before the end of high school, even though I'd done photography at high school, that I made a connection that I could actually do this as a career. Like for me, it was just a hobby because, you know, again, I was at the bottom of Africa you know, the jobs were sort of local stuff with newspapers. And unless you moved to like Johannesburg, where there was some corporate commercial jobs, it was pretty sort of samey, I guess, sort of local newspaper stuff, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do big, epic travel photography, you know, National Geographic. That was it. Like, I want to work for National Geographic. So I got into photography. I then decided, well, it would be easier if I was in the UK just to sort of get these sort of jobs. So I came over to the UK, you know, with my Irish and English sort of heritage um, and lived in London, bummed around, trying to get a few jobs. And I was getting a few really good gigs, you know. I was did a catalogue shoot in India for a rucksack company. And these were all sort of just building a portfolio. I worked on the Harry Potter films for a bit. Um, so I, things were going well. And then unfortunately, it was in my mid-20s where I really started to make some bad decisions. I got asked to photograph a friend's nursery school for kids, you know, um, and then sell the pictures to the parents. And I, there was about a hundred kids in the school, went and photographed them, walked away, did the photoshopping, you know, sent the contact sheets out and then, you know, waited a week thinking, didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden the checks, cause back then it was people would write checks, right? The checks started coming in the post and I was like, She's checks like 50 quid, 30 quid, 20 quid, 80 quid. That's boom, boom, boom. And then after I added it all up, those 100 quid, those 100 kids brought in like 2,100 pounds or something. It was crazy. And I was like 20, how old was I? 23 years old. It took me a day to photograph, not even a day, probably half a day uh, to photograph, probably another half a day to a day to do the photoshopping and the contact sheets. So call it two days really out of my time putting in two grand as a 22 year old. I was like, well, this is easy. <laughs> Let's do more of this. Uh, and that's the problem, the bad decision I made. I just went, me and my business partner, James, um, set up Life Picks Photography and we just went all in. We went all in to nurseries and all of a sudden, you know, magazines would say, oh, you know, do you want to go and do this job? You know, up in the Peak District, it'll be really good. There's a cool story up there, and you know, we'll, we'll give you, we'll pay for your travel and give you like fifty quid or hundred pounds. I was like, what? Pfft, no way, man! <laughs> I'm gonna go and photograph a hundred crying babies and earn two grand. Up yours. <laughs> what an idiot, God. Um, yeah, I mean, and then you know, it just snowboard because you do more nurseries, you make more money. You think, well, this is easy, and then it's, you play tricks on yourself. You sort of go. Well, actually, if I did 
more nurseries, I'll earn more money, which will buy me the, the t- ironically, I thought it would buy me the time to go off and do some of the, the creative work. But unfortunately, I had less time. <laughs> you know, the more nursery I was doing, the less time I had. Um, and then, you know, 10 years later, it's just all I did, really, pretty much. And, um, yeah, I wasn't happy with that. So when I turned 30, I sold my share. I mean, it was two years in the coming, really. It wasn't sort of just happy, 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 wake up one day going, oh, God, I hate this, quit. It was sort of rumbling in the background for about two years. But the Irishman in me was like, go stick it out, you know, and times are tough. You just get through it. All those met- online metaphors, right? Um, but sometimes you just got to tap out if it's the wrong thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, tapped out, sold my business, my share. So we were, James and I were 50, 50% shareholders in LifePix. I sold my 50 said share for one pound and james is from jersey and you can uh it's on my wall there that's the uh, one pound notes from jersey if you anyone doesn't know this they still have one pound notes in the channel islands um so there's the pound on my wall and ironically i then spent four pounds on that frame <laughs> so uh yeah at uh yes yeah, so i was 30 with not much savings. I probably could live in London. London's expensive. You know, if, you know, people who live in London know this. People who don't live in London, if you're not if you're not working in London, it goes quickly. Like rent is rent is crazy expensive. Just everything's expensive, right? So, um, yeah. So the sort of the leap into the adventure world is I wanted to go traveling again because I thought as a National Geographic photographer. That, that would be my passport to traveling the world. Um, but I didn't really have any money because it was London was sucking it all away. So I thought, well, if I break some sort of record in the world of travel, maybe I'll get some sort of sponsorship. Like that was my thinking. I'd seen people climb Everest and row oceans and had logos on them. And I thought, well, that must be a thing. Think of a daft idea and someone will sponsor you for it. Um, yeah. So that's sort of thought of the first thing I thought of was cycling around the world, going for that record in 2012. Um, yeah, worked really hard, trained 40 hours a week for six months, managed to get the funding to cover sort of flights and food and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, set off to cycle around the world in 2012. So that was, yeah, that was a very long winded version of how I went from <laughs> a teenager to 30 years old. No, I love it. And then another short question that you can take and run with. How, how did cycling around the world go? Um, not so well. Not so well. I was doing very well at the, the time. The current record is 160 miles a day, I think, and I, I was way ahead of that. Uh, cycled through Spain, down into Morocco. Then I was up the Pan Am from Santiago. Santiago up to Lima and then flew to America and I was going across America. So I was probably 23 days in in total, um, a week into my American leg when I got run over in America. Uh, someone just careless, not looking where they were going. It was early in the morning. And to be fair to the gentleman who ran me over, who was he was amazing. He stopped and called, called the ambulance and the hospital were amazing. Everyone was amazing in America. Uh, genuinely they were just incredible there was none of the sort of are you insured if you're not you're out the back door um they did everything under the pretense that i had no insurance 
because they didn't know at all. I was sort of unconscious. And um, yeah, so, you know, I was cycling on a road that you would never cycle on. Like you wouldn't, but I'm just following a line on a map. You know, how, how, was, how was I to know? And it was 5.30 or 6 in the morning and he, he'd been doing that road for a million years and he'd never seen one cyclist. So, you know, I, and it was raining and it was dark. So, you know, poor guy, shame. It's kind of traumatized him really, thinking he's killed a cyclist. And, and luckily I survived, of course. Um, and yeah, so that ended the world record attempt, but I carried on anyway to raise money for charity because I figured, although Mark Beaumont's ruined this philosophy, I was like, no one gets the opportunity to cycle around the world twice. <laughs> I've got my only chance at the moment. I might as well carry on and raise money for charity and just have an amazing adventure. Um, so that's what I did. Yeah. Carried on, raised money for charity and then got, got back home ready to sort of get back into real, real life, to be honest. So outside of the, well, inside of, I suppose, you've got, you set off to cycle the world to break a record. And obviously there was this athletic commitment to the part of the journey up until you got hit by a car. Yeah. After that, suddenly the record disappears and you're just cycling. Was that different and how, and was it more fun or less fun? Um, oh, for me, definitely less fun. The there was still a, a slight athletic element to it because the new rec, the new goal for me personally was trying to get back to London in time for the Olympics because some kids made me, and it's on my desk here still, eleven nine years later. They made me a replica Olympic torch, which has it has batteries in it, and those they flicker. So it's it's basically a little plastic olympic torch it was it was 2012 in london so the idea was to try and take this around the world and get it back to london in time for the olympics so i redid the maths and instead of having to do 160 miles a day i only had to do about 125 or something which is way easier um so it was still it was annoying it was sort of a middle ground because 125 a day is still tough ish you know but it, it allows you to have sit-down meals rather than having to eat on the bike, really, and it allows you to not have to do that sort of what I call sort of the death zone, which is your sort of 9, 9 p.m. to midnight when everyone's maybe potentially had a few drinks and the road's a bit more dangerous. So you don't have to do those hours either. Um, but you're still cycling all day, really. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I definitely – I'm not a very good – I'm not very good at holidays, and Caroline, my wife, hates it because I'm. I need I need to have some something to do. I get really frustrated, and you know I didn't want the rest of the bike ride just to be a holiday. So I, I needed some something, and this Olympic torch idea at least was gave me that little bit of purpose, which I enjoyed. But it wasn't the purpose I I wanted to, you know, um, wanted to because actually, if I wanted to just go on a cycle jolly. I probably could have spent two years cycling around the world slowly with the small savings I had because I had about £3,000 in the bank when I quit the photography. So, you know, if you're Al Humphreys, you know, that's that's easy a couple of years around the world, right? <laughs> what was he spending? He was spending 1500 quid a year, I think, to cycle around the world. And he did. I was just going to reference Al with my next question because he did four, didn't he? Four years. So he did four and a half years on seven grand, yeah. So it's, it's phenomenal, really. And um, But it's a different thing, isn't it? I mean, you guys were looking for different things. Oh, 100%, yeah. Al can't understand at all 
sort of myself and Mark Beaumont. And and, now, and Mark and I can't understand how we're like, I just, just, the idea of spending four years cycling around the world just for the sake of cycling, for me personally, I'm, yeah, I don't know, I'd get frustrated. I think I would, you know, because I get it for some people. I think people would go out to do that, to find themselves, to meet new people and meet new cultures and that sort of thing. Well, that's great. Um, I think I would come back worse off because I, I would almost feel as if it was a bit frivolous for me personally whereas having the athletic angle to it in my head at least kind of means a little bit more to me personally it gives me gives makes me feel a little bit a, a little bit prouder of the achievement at the end than had I not done it and that's just me personally of course you know everyone, everyone has their own reasons for doing something um and you know, I know Al goes. What you didn't really cycle the world, mate. You hardly spoke to anyone else. You know, how can you say you cycled around the world when you didn't even, you know? And, and it's true. I mean, I, I cycled through whole countries without saying a word to someone. You know, like you know, in Macedonia, you cycle through in, in a morning type thing, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, and then you know, I'm like, well, did you really enjoy it, Al? You lived on bread and ketchup for years. <laughs> 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 no, but it's this is what's so interesting, and it there's no right or wrong. Neither of you are right, exactly. you know. Yeah, but it, I mean that takes us full circle because you said right at the start, you know, you get labelled an adventurer, and of course, to some extent, you are. But that's not how you phrase it. Yeah, because I'm in the world of adventure. You've got exploration on one side, where you go off and you discover things, and it's it's fairly leisurely, I guess. And on the other side, there's sport, athleticism. Uh, and then obviously there's a big gray, there's loads of areas in the middle. Like you can go to the South Pole, which is not really exploration, but you could do it slowly and it's a bit further up the food chain. Or you could get the record for going to the South Pole, which is really on the athletic side. And same with cycling around the world. You know, you could go and cycle through the jungle to explore different fauna and flora or explore the deforestation. Or you could just do it for a little bit of an adventure and that's further up the scale. Or you could just try and break some sort of record and that's on the sport side of things and that's certainly where I am and where I get a kick out of is, is the physical side on the end you know and without meaning to you know really really unpack it in minute detail why is that what you're looking for I don't know I don't know I just enjoy it I enjoy I enjoy training for something I, I it gives me a kick out of it like I know that Tomorrow, I could literally go down to my garage. I have everything in my garage I need to just cycle to Australia. Like, I could. And actually, it doesn't excite me that much because I know I could do it. However, if someone said the world record from cycling to Australia is X amount of days from London, there isn't a real world record for that. But if there was, that means today, I know I couldn't, I couldn't break that record because it would be quite difficult. So I like to do stuff where there's certain an element of uncertainty to it because I, it makes me get out of bed earlier. It makes me train harder. It gives me just some drive, and and I'm a bit of a, I'm a monkey terrier in my in my head, and I, I enjoy being a monkey when I'm a monkey because I'm inquisitive and I like to break things and fix things. I like to try different stuff, um, but if I'm a monkey for too long, I get really super frustrated which means I need terrier mode. And then when I'm in terrier mode, then I love it. I love having projects to do, things to work towards. And I'm like, red mist, go for it. But you can't be a terrier for everything because you just burn out. You get knackered, right? You just get tired. So 
I enjoy having those, which is why I enjoy having different projects that I'm working towards, things that are difficult, you know. Um, and yeah, I just feel better in my in my mental health if I have these big physical, physically demanding challenges to do. Um, they don't always have to be records. For example, you know, my National Parks marathons I've just done. That's 15 marathons in 15 days in 15 separate UK national parks. You know, that wasn't a record by any means. But for me, I knew that actually I couldn't just wake up, get out of bed tomorrow and do it. I had to train for it. I had to plan for it. I had all the logistics of 1,600 miles of driving, uh, each run location. I needed parking for, for the day. I needed to run because I was doing it self-supported. My loops had to be back to the car. And I wanted it to be off-road. You know, and I loved doing all of that. It really gave me a greater sense of achievement at the end. Um, because of it. And I think that's probably why I, I do these. And also the ego in me just wants some epic, you know, old age home tales. <laughs> when I'm sat in the old chair, you know, did you know I was once the first person to swim the length of Britain? Shut up, granddad. You've told us that a million times. <laughs> Someone else has done it three times faster now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, but the 15 marathons in 15 national parks is a good example of like, from, you know, forgive me because I am totally on your team with this, but it's essentially, it's just contrived, right? It's, it's for you, isn't it? And yeah. You know, yeah. Oh just... yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I didn't invent it, but a couple of people have done it before me. Um, I don't know how many, not, not that many. Um, but I, yeah, I'd heard of it before, so I wasn't trying to pretend it was my idea or anything. Uh, and that one had an extra element of I just wanted to promote, especially now with everyone staying more local and using the national parks more that, you know, we should really look after them. And I was sort of showing off the beauty of them and the fact that they're worth sort of looking after, really. So uh, there's, yeah, there's loads of reasons I wanted to do that. Um, but, you know, definitely one of the bigger ones is just the physical challenge for me. It excited me, you know. Yeah. And it, you know, it's it's sort of hard interviewing you with an hour slot because there's, you know, I went through your website earlier and we can probably... go over. Let's do. I like. Let's just do Joe Rogan, man. Let's just do four hours. Come on. <laughs> I've never done that. I think the longest was two and a half, and we split it up into two episodes. Oh no, don't split. I won't listen to a podcast if it's less than forty-five minutes. I genuinely won't. Like, yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth, <laughs> even though it's, even that's free. Um. <laughs> um. <laughs> right well here goes um no i'll be a good boy so you just said you swam the length of britain yes god it's a while back now jeez i mean a part of me feels like it was just the other day and a part of me feels like it was so long ago and it was so hard i'm starting to question whether i'm in the matrix like you know so it was 2013 i'm, I'm still not a swimmer and it was it was so tough, and I, I like just from a like an overall just sucking it up. Like every day, I really had to just suck it up and get on with it because it wasn't necessarily like physically demanding. It's not like I was in epic high heart rate, and there was no lactic acid buildup, and it was none of that. It was just miserable. Like every day was just like, oh my god, I just do not want to do this. Whereas everything else I've done, there's been days where it's been miserable, but there's also been days where it's like, oh, well, this is nice. But on the swim, there was like, 
in 135 days, it was probably five days where it was like, oh, this is nice. Because like there was no winds and it was warm and I was I was fully hydrated and I'd eaten well and I'd slept well and you know when all the stars aligned, it was pretty rare um, on the swim because it's I call it the the six pistons of endurance or five really while you're out so planning beforehand food water sleep muscle management and motivation so the food water sleep muscle management and motivation. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start adding planning in now permanently because I guess you still do planning while you're on the road. Um, to get all six cylinders firing when you start when you're sort of doing these multi-day sort of epic adventures, especially the self-supported ones, it's so impossible, you know, to get them all firing. You know, when you've had good sleep, your muscles are good, you've had good food, you've had the right amount of sleep, because if you have too much sleep, you're behind the record. If your motivation's high and if everything has gone to plan from your route and your weather and whatnot, you know, it's so rare that they all go. So, yeah, so the swim, you know, I look back at, as I said, I mean, I, I sometimes think, and we joked about it in the swim, me and the crew, we would, we were convinced at some, at many times that we were actually just in some sort of uh, asylum and this was all a fabric of our imagination and we're actually just like, I was in a bath and then Em and the kayak was sitting on a chair pretending to kayak. And then Lou, the skipper, was sort of standing on the edge of the bath shouting things. And we had this elaborate sort of Matrix-esque type scenario that was actually happening. But in our heads, we were just believing that we were swimming the lake for Britain. <laughs> and I, I am convinced still now that maybe, maybe that did happen. Maybe this is all just a Matrix because... If you told me to try to swim the Lake of Britain now, it's, no, yeah, no thanks. No, it's, it's, it's so miserable. <laughs> it's so, I find it so fascinating, the ultra-endurance stuff, because it's polar, you know, I'm not built for that kind of thing. But in terms of my motivation, I just, I, why not just quit? Well, I'm going to change the question. I was going to say, why not just quit on day five? Because you realize it's going to suck and you're not having those five good days over the course of it. But I think maybe a better place to go would be what are Sean's secret for the six pistons and maybe we'll find out along the way. Well, no, we'll answer your first question. Why so why why don't you quit? Um because nothing I was still ahead of the record. I was still making progress on the swim. I was you know, even though the progress was slow. Um and if I quit I'm just back in with my mum in a one-bedroom flat in Cheltenham. Like, you know, that that was a pretty good incentive not to. Not to, <laughs> I can assure you. From her point of view as well, she's like, Sean, I do not want you back living with me. You're 33 years old. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, so I mean, that's often a reason. Like, quitting actually makes me, puts me in a worse off place mentally and everything than, than the physical pain I'm experiencing at that moment. Um but things, the tips to kind of get all the six cylinders firing, phew, I mean, I, that's a podcast in itself, to be honest. Um, I'm very, and the terrier in me is very methodical in when it comes to these sort of things. So let's listen. So planning. For for the swim or for a, a bike ride, I'm, I look at the entire route. I look for places to anchor, I look at currents, I look at weather patterns, I look at wind roses for wind directions. For cycling, I'm, I'm on 
Google Street View to look for good roads, for good hard shoulders, finding places to eat, potential camp spots, if there's any altitude, you know, uh, you know, you just plan the hell out of it, right? Then food, you know, am I supported? Am I self-supported? What type of food do you think I'm going to be able to get? How often, how many calories am I going to eat? That depends really on how, what my heart rate is like, if I'm pushing in the hills, how much protein will I need? How many car, how much carb will I need? How much fat will I need? You know, if you're just plodding along the flat at 110 heart rate, you could pretty much survive on fat all day of the week. If you've sort of got some hills and your heart rate's up at 150, you're going to need carbohydrate. Even if you're on a high fat diet, that's just the way it is. Your body needs to burn quicker and carbs help do that. So, you know, what's the ratio of that like? You know, are you, you know, I feel better when I eat more vegetables, but then when I'm in the middle of Russia, that might be difficult to find. So what's my diet going to be like there? Um, and, you know, that's just constantly in my head. I'm thinking, you know, am I on top of my food game? Hydration, water, you know, I need lots of salt because you lose lots of salt during sport. And I actually have a salt deficiency. I lose 3.4 grams of salt per liter of sweat. I'm sweating a liter an hour in about 30 degrees. So I need X amount of water per hour to just to keep hydrated. And then I need extra salt within that water to absorb it. Um, but you don't want too much salt or too much water because then you're carrying extra water for nothing. This is on the bike, of course. Um, muscle management. Am I able to jump in a cold river at the end of the day? Am I able to use a the the, the barrier of a on a road to roll my legs sometimes, or a rock on the road? I've done that. You know, just get a rock and just roll it out as if it's a tennis ball on the side of the road. I've done. I did that on the national parks marathons. Instead of carrying something with me, I just find a rock and just use it as a massage thing or a twig. I've often get a. And actually, this is a quite a common thing. You know, if I'm camping in a forest on the bicycle you know i find a, a twig try and take the bark off it and then i'm sort of naked because I, I i don't take any clothes to sleep in so i often just sleep naked so there i am naked rubbing a twig up and down my leg and i'm convinced every time i do this is one of those little owl or owl spying <laughs> night vision cameras like there's some twitcher who wants to spot a fox or a badger or an owl he's put a camera there and also the gets a ping on his phone. He's like, oh, what have we got? And he sees me rubbing my leg up <laughs> stick completely naked in the forest. Uh, and I, uh, Anyway, I always sort of give a wave as well. I'm like, I'm like, I wave up into the forest just in case that happens. Every time I do it, genuinely, I'm convinced. Um, so, yeah, then, uh, then there's sleep. You know, how much sleep do I need depending on how hard I've pushed it versus if I'm self-supported. Like the swim, my sleep was set because the tides were set. So I... I had to just sleep in between tides, basically. But, you know, the cycling records, it's like, you know, how how much sleep can I have and still be ahead of the record for recovery? Um, you know, sometimes I might just cycle a bit quicker just to buy an extra half an hour of sleep. Uh, but then if you push it quicker, you often need even more sleep. Like there's a diminishing returns at some point when you pick up the pace. Um, and then motivation. What's motivating me? I call them, you know, I dangle metaphorical carrots in front of me. You know, raising money for charity is a good motivating factor. For me now, trying to impress my my kids, you know, so that when eventually they're a teenager, they can go, wow, Dad, you uh, you did some cool stuff once upon a time. Although, all my friends who have teenage kids inform me that no teenager thinks their dad's cool, so I'm wasting my time. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so, and that's, that's the motivation side of things. You know, what's keeping me motivated? 
Another one is I love writing books. I've written seven books, although there's one we don't talk about. I've written six books. <laughs> you can cut that bit out. <laughs> um, no, but I, I have to know what the seventh is that we don't talk about. <laughs> it's actually not. It's, so it was, I did a guidebook to cycling around the world, and, and it was called World Cycling Stripped Bear. Uh, it's just super outdated now, to be honest, and there was a lot of a lot of information really that was more geared to racing cycling around the world that most people who want to cycle the world don't care about. So people would buy it thinking it was going to give them something and it wasn't actually that really. And I, I probably just didn't really explain it properly, but, um, and now it's so out of date, you know, it's nearly 10 years old. Now technology's changed countries that were safe are now dangerous and vice versa. So don't buy it. It's kind of a waste. Waste of your money. Waste of two pound ninety nine or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I love writing. So that's another motive. If I carry on, I get to write a book about it that my future grandkids will be able to read one day. This is going to sound like a really stupid question, but obviously you don't have time to write when you're moving that fast. How do you retain all of the information in order to write a book? Uh, voice memos. So I have voice memos on my phone uh, as I'm cycling along. So when I'm cycling, for example, the phone is on my handlebars and I'll just record as I go. Um, and it's great to listen back to after because I'm so tired. I'm, often I do the same voice memo like three times. Like, oh, today I did X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And then 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, I've not done my voice memo today. Today I did X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And then, yeah, but um, yeah, so voice voice memos is, is a great way. And it's a nice memory as well later on. And I think the next big challenge I do, which I've not decided yet, I've got a couple of feeders out and things in the pipeline, but COVID, just waiting for that. Um, I think I might turn those into some sort of podcast. I think it'd be quite fun just to listen to my, my memos. Yeah, I think it would. It feels... I, I did recorded a series on the expedition two years ago, and it felt so real. Mm-hmm. Like we were doing them on portal ledges and in the jungle, and it just feels, yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to do it. I'd, I'd like to do it well, so I'd, I'd really want to put some brain space to it. Um, so, yeah, see, this is the monkey in me going, ooh, I want to do a podcast, and I want to make a little film, and I want to do – I also need to do a full Instagram live film which means you've got to shoot everything vertical as well. Um, yeah, so in my head's like, oh, this will be cool, this will be cool, this will be cool. And then, yeah, you just you don't want to make it all a bit crap. I'd rather do one thing very well than make them all a bit wishy-washy. But I think, I think a, a podcast during an adventure could be cool um, and, and stream it li- not live, but, you know, daily almost. Or yeah. weekly. But, you know, just something to think about. Yeah, but I think, you know, that is all related to going through your website. It's a fairly unique experience because, I mean, you publish lots of stuff on there that people don't normally, and I definitely want to come onto that a little bit later. But you also, you know, you've cycled the world, some of the length of Britain, you've done your triathlon, which is, you know, outrageous. And you've also been to the cheese rolling. (laughs) You know, and I, I think we maybe should talk a bit about that because there's an element of like, I don't know, light-hearted adventure about you that I think is interesting. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, so it's, I enjoy just doing things a bit differently. I think, I think if there was going to be something written on my gravestone that epitomized what I, how I live to my, like to live my life, it's, you know, he, he lived a, a sort of a unique and interesting life. I think that's really something I strive for. I, I like to be unique and I like to, to be interesting. I like to do things that are unique and do things that are interesting. And the cheese rolling, I think, is very interesting. Like, it's an interesting tradition like 200 years old chasing a double gloucester red down a hill what and it's still going now with health and safety you kidding me um you know that's super interesting so i was like i'm gonna do that and my biggest regret is i i was i was a bit i was faffing at the beginning of that race and i didn't start when everyone else started so i was way at the back to start and i came second by like half a meter i would have totally won had I just been a little bit on the ball, like it was so overwhelming. There's 5,000 people. You can hardly hear the start guy and he goes three, two, one, and he rolls the cheese on one. And then he gets, says go and you meant to go. But a couple of people went before he said go, which is when everyone goes really as he rolls the cheese. But I was kind of, I was sort of like, has he said go yet? I couldn't quite hear. And then all of a sudden everyone's running and I'm like, what's happening? Oh, sh- I better run now. So if you see that there's footage, and I think I've even got stills on my website, like I'm way back at the beginning. And then I sort of ca- catch everyone up, do a massive tumble with a, some other kid and knock him out. He went to hospital, shame, poor guy. And um, yeah, and then just did this epic face plant. Boom, at the bottom, like a double cartwheel. And the hill's so steep, and then it flattens out the bottom. And you're probably running 30 miles, 20 miles an hour, probably by then, because you're going so fast. And the equivalent is, imagine turning that sideways so that the, the hill is flat. It's almost like running into a brick wall at 20 mile an hour. That's what it was like for me because I was running down the hill and when it flattened out, I just, boom, hit the ground, dislocated my shoulder, which is still messed up today. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. But if my son says he wants to do it, I'll put my foot down and say, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably the one thing. Actually, no, there's quite. A, in fact, almost everything I've done, I probably wouldn't do again. Uh, but certainly that. Yeah, I'm glad I did it. It was good fun, um, and I've got. I've even got. I've still got. The, you can't see it, but I've actually got the certificate on my wall here. Since I came second, rubbing my face in it. <laughs> Seconds, mad. I mean, I you know when it said I didn't read the thing. Yeah, I was like doing quick bits of research. Oh, he's done this. He's done that. He's done that. Yeah second out of five thousand people well no so each race there's there's five official races with the actual cheese there's two men's one 
at the beginning, a women's one, and then another two men's one. So those are the official with the cheese. They then keep doing the races, uh, but without a cheese. So they just go, on your marks, get set, go. And I'll just keep doing those all day. So in my, and in each race is 15 people. So you have to queue up early to get in a race. So I was there at 8 a.m. The first race was at midday, um, and I just got in. But you rear, because they cordon off the whole top of the hill, and there's a tiny little hole you have to crawl under just to get in a race. And I was sort of huddled there, and people are fighting. You know, people have traveled from America to come and do the, the cheese rolling, and then they just don't realize how busy it is. So from 8 a.m. till midday, I'm sort of huddled, waiting for my spot to get through the gate to get in one of the official races. Um, so, yeah, so there was only 15 people in my race. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, damn it. Still annoys me that it didn't win. <laughs> so, I mean, is that an adventure or do you care? Oh, I don't care. Just just an experience, a life experience, I guess. I don't know if you could. I mean, you can class it an adventure. I mean, the, I think the definition of, of adventure is a, a daring experience i think so there's got to be an element of danger a daring or dangerous experience i think is, is what it says in the dictionary um so yeah but i guess yeah that was definitely daring <laughs> um but yeah for me for me in my what i define adventure is, is probably a little bit different to to that um but yeah it was uh certainly an experience that's for sure so I am really keen to talk about um, the triathlon because that seems... Which one? The round Britain one? or the, the yeah. Main, yeah. Yeah, the round. Okay, cool. So that was part of my biggest, my bigger goal of the, the three Fs of endurance. I wanted a legitimate world first in, uh, sorry, a world record in the three Fs. So that's a world's first, a world's furthest, and a world's fastest. So after I got the swim, which was a world's first, I wanted to go for a world's furthest, so it's just the longest of something. Um, and I like doing, I like the idea of multidiscipline. So they, I found out that there was a record for the world's longest triathlon at the time. It was 3,500 miles uh, by someone, who, a girl in Mexico, I believe, who did it. Um, so I just wanted to beat her. I was like, that sounds like a tough record. I want to do a harder one, or, uh, sorry, a longer one. Uh, and I love exploring in britain and and doing things here so i decided to do a lap of britain um which was 4200 miles uh so that was 3500 on the bike 820 on the run and 120 miles swim all fully self-supported uh which for me was important because i felt it was a little bit more anyone else could do it like you genuinely didn't have to have this big support crew with you uh it was also a hell of a lot cheaper to pull off the ground than having a big support crew so that also made it easier to decide to do it that way um and it meant i could just kind of go with the flow and do each day as it came for that one and yeah that was great and actually i still hold that record for another few weeks i think <laughs> there's a guy called jonas deichmann a German guy who was obliterating it. So mine was 4,000 miles. I think it's going to be 20,000. Um, he's on day 300 at the moment. So he did a four, he did 250 mile swim along the med. Then he cycled all the way around 
Europe and Asia to the edge of Russia. And now he's running across Mexico as the final leg. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, funny story, I, only, I I really think he's only doing this because I broke his across Europe cycling record. <laughs> so he's amazing. trying to get he's trying to get back at me. So um, yeah, he's he's a, he's, a, he's such a good guy, Jonas Deichmann. Check him out. I hope I'm saying his name right. We chat on on WhatsApp every now and then, and he's he's currently running across Mexico, which in the middle of summer is a feat or unto itself. Um, but yeah, really cool guy. But yeah, when he, I, I remember him saying when he broke his Europe cycling record, he was like, "Oh yeah, I think I'm going to hold this record for a while, and then I, and then I beat it like a year later, only by eight hours." To be fair, like I, it was a 25 day record. I only broke it by eight hours. Um, but I think after that, he's like, right, what records does Sean have that I could break? <laughs> so, yeah, good on him. He's a good guy. He's a cool guy. Just in terms of self-supported, because I'm really interested in that, like when it's polar, people get it. Like you you put everything in a pulp and you pull it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you allowed to go to Tesco on Around Britain? So Guinness, who really are still outside of rowing, um, Atlantic rowing, at least, um, are still really the only governing body who adjudicates adventure records or these sort of travel-based records, right? And Guinness actually have no differentiation be- between whether it's fully supported or fully self-supported. So technically, you can do any record fully supported and it makes no difference. Um so my Europe record's a good example of that. Because, as you say, there's so much grey area. You know, like an old lady gave me a banana on the side of the road. Someone let me sleep in their conservatory one night. Did they support me? You know, I'm still carrying my own tent. I'm still looking for my own food. You know, I booked into a hotel one night, you know, you know type thing. So so there is a big grey area. So that's why Guinness, and, and I, I kind of get it. They've just gone, right, there's, there's no difference. You, you decide. Uh, so, for example, on my Europe ride, I did self-supported, and then Lee Timmis went fully supported a couple of weeks after me and, and annihilated my record, as you would fully supported, um, which is nice. He kind of did me a favor because I feel quite proud that I made the self-supported record so hard that to then break it, you would have to go supported. Um, and that tends to be the, re- the way all these records go, like Mark Bobot cycling around the world. You know, everyone doing the round the world cycle was sort of, fully self-supported alan Bates had a kind of partially supported ride um and in his defense he was trying to get guinness to give him a different record uh rather than vin cox's one so vin cox and alan Bates went together vin was totally self-supported alan was partially supported in some legs um uh and then mark beaumont well then michael broke both of theirs completely self-supported so everyone just sort of stopped questioning this alan Bates one because it didn't matter anymore and then Mark Bowman went fully supported. Uh, and then, yeah, so, but I think from a, so because no one else will sort of slap you on the wrist and go, oh, actually, you were supported. Genuinely, I think if you carry everything you need and find everything yourself en route, then people will consider that completely self-supported. So as long as you, you know, no one else is carrying your kit for you and, you know, you've not got a van following you, going and booking a hotel for you and checking in because, you know, I think if you, as long as you don't do those things, the, the general public who follow you um, 
will kind of go, yeah, that's that's pretty much self-supporting. Yeah, that's fair. I think like because that's the thing. Lots of people don't care, right? They just don't, you know, not interested in whether something's supported or not. But it feels like it's not contrived if you accept that there's something there. Like, yeah, you know, it there's a Tesco's there. There's a hotel. That nice lady offered you a conservatory. Like, you you know you did that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, th- I think you just, you just, you got to do what you say you're going to do, you know. Um, and and people don't want to feel lied to or feel like you've misled them a little in any way, you know. I met someone who was who wanted to walk Lands End to John O'Groats. So, and I, I, I want to get this right. He wanted to carry all the food he would need for the whole walk from day one which meant he wasn't allowed to go and buy any food for the whole trip. But he was allowed to buy water, I think. And people seem to be fine with that. I think as long as you, which it, for me, it was like, well, it's a bit weird, but I kind of get it. You know, you want to have that challenge, which is great. Um, but you're still going into a Tesco to buy water every day because you can't carry water every single day, of course. Um, but, it's, you know, he made that clear to people and people were like, okay, cool. You know, like Ross Edgeley swimming around Britain, not going on land. You know, did people care if he had got off the boat and stayed in the hotel? No, I wouldn't. It's still bloody impressive. Um, but he just, he added that extra thing to make it more impressive, which it certainly did. I think it was amazing to do. But I think had he stayed in the hotel every night, I would have been like, well done, mate. <laughs> You've made the most of it. Go and stay in your hotel. Get a massage. You know, um, it doesn't. It, it, you know, his swim was so impressive. It 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 didn't really matter where, for me whether he stayed stayed on a boat each night and didn't touch land. Um, but I get it. I think I probably would have done the same as he did. I think it's cool to add that extra bit of thing just personally um, for your own sort of for your own extra challenge. Um, so yeah, I think genuinely, I think if you just do tell people what you're going to do from the start and stick to it. And then people kind of will get behind you anyway. Yeah. Sometimes it's PR and narrative there, right? Whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic, like Ross didn't need to sleep on the boat, as you say, but makes the story better. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It depends what your goals are. You know, if your goal is to, to get more PR and get more followers and make it the bigger thing of it, then yeah, certainly do all those, those things. Um, uh, and, and sometimes you, you, it's fun to do those things as well, because it is fun because if you spread the message more, you might raise more money for charity and you might inspire more kids. So it, it is great. It is great to have those things. And also I, I'm a bit, again, it's the monkey terrier. Sometimes I couldn't, I just really couldn't be bothered with all these quirky stories because I'm so tired. I just want to get on with it and I just want to do it. And then five minutes later, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd done that little quirky thing because it would have made more kids smile or, you know, whatever. So, again, it, it, it's monkey in me that sort of plays, plays around whether, you know, whether I like doing those things or not. It, kind of, it also depends on the challenge I'm doing, I guess. Yeah. So, and one thing that I, you know, we glossed over at the time, but I really want to ask you is Jonas. So you talked about how you broke his Europe record and now you're convinced that he's just doing it to spite you. And I obviously, you know, there's a tongue in cheek element to that, but how does it genuinely feel 
when someone breaks one of your records. Oh, I love it. I, I help them. I've helped everyone try and break all my records, or the people who've tried, uh, except Ross. I was I was doing my Europe cycle record while he was planning his swim. So, and he knew I was doing the record. So he actually messaged me afterwards and said, oh, mate, I hope you don't feel bad. I didn't ask for your advice because I knew you were off doing the cycle record. So, um, yeah, he, and he, he had such a good team around him anyway. He, he didn't need my advice, to be honest. Um, but, uh, and he's a machine. Uh, but everyone else, yeah. So Jonas, I was, you know, because he, he was wondering about the, the percentages, you know, so dividing up your total routes into the same proportions as a normal triathlon, which obviously is short swim. And so I was chatting him through that. And, you know, he was helping me with Russian, the Russian route because he had a terrible route. So I did a slightly different route, which was also terrible anyway. So maybe he was stitching me up there. But uh, <laughs> no, you know, the community is great because actually it doesn't really matter. Like I've got, you know, I've got my, my, pub story i've got my old age home story already you know i don't really care if someone wants to break my record i don't really for me it's an honor that someone's wanted to go and have a crack at it you know that's great you know it's made i'm surprised the swim took so long you know so i did 2013 i did did the swim when did ross do his swim 2018 maybe you know i'm surprised that took so long for someone to have another crack at um I had three people email me about it in those five, six years, uh, and then I never heard from them again. So I, I don't know. Ever, I don't know what happened to their attempts. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's. I think I feel honoured when people have a crack. You know, it seems like you know. We I suppose you do enter races and stuff as well, don't you? You don't just dream up your own, you know, schemes. No, no, never. The only. I've done it. I did a tough mudder in 2012. I did the London Marathon in 2017, 18, 2018, 2019. I don't know, somewhere then. Uh, that's it. Those are the only two races I've ever ever entered. And I've, I've entered my first ultra marathon in August. So I'm doing my first ever 50k um, in the Peak District. So looking forward to that running race. Um, Actually, no. I, the Route sixty six was the 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 only bike race I've entered as well. Like, but again, that was that wasn't really a, a race. That was a, a bit like the round the world thing. Sort of a bunch of people decided to start at the same time. Bit of a flash mob type thing, um, really. And I think that's how they get around it from an insurance point of view. They just cast it as a flash mob. Um, and yeah, so I. I, I I've not really sort of entered marathons and ultra marathons and the Trans Am I've not entered. I'd like to, the Transcont I've not entered, you know, race to the rock I've not entered. I've not entered loads of cycling or running events, but I, I'm going to, I think I, I'm going to start doing a little bit more of those. Um, you know, as you get older, we've, you know, I've got a two year old, you know what it's like being a new dad. Your, your time is limited. And also your, the, you being away and knowing your family is going through a, a tough time because you're not there really makes it not as worthwhile to go off and do do some things you know so when i did my national parks marathon can you believe it typically on day three my son's two years old he's not been ill ever and on day three he gets pneumonia you know i was on my third third national park 
Caroline's in hospital at two in the morning with ambulance, you know, like he really looked like death as well. He was like a sack of potatoes with pneumonia. And I'm like, who gets pneumonia? Like, come on, like typically. So I nearly, I nearly came home on that. And actually I wanted to come home, but, and, and weirdly because of COVID, I wouldn't have been allowed to help him anyway, because in I wouldn't have been allowed to go in the hospital or anything. And, and actually they realized it wasn't a super serious pneumonia. So he was allowed to go home. Um, but it had it been any serious, hundred percent, I would have just been not, you know, would have come home. But it certainly made me question, you know, why am I doing these things? You know, being away from my family. Um, but then it is my job, and if you want to talk about the sort of, you know, the slightly unglamorous side of of it, and that's why I say I'm a sports person because when you tell someone you're a sportsman, there's an element of oh, this is your job and you do it and it pays your mortgage um and and that's why i've sort of used the word athlete in my sort of my bio i guess because then people understand this is my career this is my career like in any sport that's your job you get paid to do it and it pays your mortgage and allows me to pay my son's nursery fees which i don't know if you're there yet mate blimmin hell <laughs> start saving <laughs> um you know, so, you know, that that's the unglamorous side of what I do. So, you know, what I do does provide for my family and I'm quite proud to have made it a, a way of living that I am able to provide for my family um, because it's not the easiest business to get into, <laughs> I have to be honest. I don't I remember when I was 30 and I packed it all in, I you know, and after the round the world cycle. So actually it was after the swim, after the swim, is when I suddenly thought, hmm, this could pay my rent. <laughs> uh, and Ben Fogel, and I always try and give him a shout out. He was amazing. He was so good to me after the swim. You know, he took me under his wing a little bit and just said, oh, yeah, you, there's going to be a lot of people who want a lot from you. It'd be good. I'll put you in touch with a manager and an agent and a book, a book publisher and all these sort of things. And he really helped me out. And because of him, I got, a, you know, I got a, a, a pretty good book deal from my point of view rather than just getting some you know getting shocked uh and i got a good manager who was able to sort of filter out some pretty rubbish deals versus some good sponsorship deals and then i got the discovery channel deals and that sort of thing and, and that really all came because of ben fogel so you know i owe him a lot really but then that really opened up put me in in a world of being basically a non-professional sportsman really you know, that's kind of where I'm at. And then it, it's then evolved to become this ultra endurance adventure, adventure athlete. You know, I add the word adventure there because I have to, because if I just say ultra endurance athlete, people presume I just enter pre-existing race, races, but the adventure side of it sort of suggests I do sort of, I, I go off and try and break records rather than just enter races type thing. Um, so, so yeah, so I, you know, it, when you have children, it definitely does change the way you think. It's weirdly what it's done for me, though, is it's made me stop doing the stuff, the, the middle distance stuff, where there's a huge element of risk, but not big reward. What it's made me do is a lot of smaller stuff that I get a kick out of it where there's low risk. But it's also made me want to do even bigger stuff where there is risk, but the reward is bigger. 
because and when I say reward, it's just that that achievement reward at the end, and the fact that my son will hopefully, when he's a teenager, go, "Whoa, Dad, you did that. That's cool." So that's what having a dad has changed. Not that you asked the question, but I'm gonna. You were going to, right? I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm ask actually, it anyway. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you went there because I'm super conscious of avoiding it because it's at the front of my mind. And I don't want to just ask everybody because, you know, not everybody wants to hear it. But well, no, it's the reason I, I go down that rabbit hole is because it's one of the questions I get the most nowadays. You know, um, you know, question number one is always, you know, how do you afford to do what you do? And how do you how do you get sponsorship? That's pretty much the most common question I get. And the second one is now, how do you you know, how do you balance being a dad and going off and doing these things? And, and I, you know, people always people actually find this interesting. I, I'm, I'm at home a lot. Genuinely, you know, I'm writing, I'm training from home. Um, Caroline, my wife, she works from home as well. She has her own business. Um, so I'm, you know, it's not like my family never see me, which is nice. It's just when I go away, I'm then away for a month, or two months, you know, um, and yes, I'll do little trips. Like I was just in Tenerife for five days and then I'm off, I'm running across Iceland in, in August. Um, so that's 10 days of running across Iceland. So yeah, I have to do these little blocks away, but then the rest of the time I am very much at home. So I'd like to think as a dad, I'm, I'm not just away all the time and the times when I am away, it's it's worth it for our family clan, the Conway clan, you know. And we've got another baby on the way due in October. So um, that uh, – I'm not sure I was meant to tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Caroline. Um, anyway, there we go. That news is out. Um, yeah, well, so we're expecting, expecting baby number two. So that's exciting. <laughs> well, hey, congratulations. It's, it's exciting times and, um, you know, definitely – a new approach to to doing my my challenges yeah i think you know there's a i think it was leo holding said to me that um two weeks is easy that was his thing he was giving me because i've been away a lot over the past few months with the new baby and he, he says two weeks is easy after that it starts to get hard and i think that's probably pretty true yeah yeah and i mean his kids are a bit older now so it is a bit easier with, with you know you know with a pregnant wife and a two-year-old, two weeks is still hard. <laughs> two weeks yeah. is still hard for her, definitely. You know, you know, I'm very lucky that Caroline is just an absolute legend. You know, she's such a good mum. She's super hardworking. You know, she's not only is she pregnant, and she's got a toddler running around. She runs her own business and she works part time for a charity. So you know, she's really just a superwoman. Um, and, but it makes it tough when I am away, even for two weeks, even for, for five days. So, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is within our family when I am away for maybe a little bit longer, like if I am away for a month, which I'm not at the moment, I've got nothing planned in the pipeline, but you know, when I was away for this, I was away for 17 days in the end for my national parks marathons and really I think if I'm going to be away, even for that time now with the newborn on the way, we, we need to have a plan. I think we need to, to make a plan because 
Well, also, our son is is just really not much of a sleeper. Still, I hate to break it to you. Is yours a, a perfect sleeper already, our pet? No. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And in fact, <laughs> don't, just don't ask me because the, our, the future's not good now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We're really struggling here. I was thinking about it as well. I should make sure that there's some context for the Leo comment because he... Um, he was talking in reference to the kids and how they react, which obviously I suppose we don't have to deal with that yet, but he reckons after two weeks it starts to get hard for the kids. And I think that's something we'll have to consider is, you know, it's not just about us anymore. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And it was heartbreaking, you know. My son, I was away for two weeks, and, you know, when I came back, there was this, this first element of shyness from him towards me. I was like, what? That's... Whew. I mean, that just took me aback. I mean, it only lasted like two, three seconds, but it was at first like, oh, who, who, oh, it's dad. Oh, God, it's daddy. I was like, oh, wow. That was like, oh, maybe what a sort of all of a sudden just become a, a gardener at home, just, you know, or an accountant. What can I do? What can I, actually, you could pretty much do every job from home now, except <laughs> a sports person. Um, so yeah, no, that that was that was quite tough. But yeah, no, you're right. You know, you're right. I mean, luckily it's easier nowadays with with FaceTime and and you know at least he we get to chat and he's really taken that on board at the age of two, showing me things. He can even now work out how to sort of flip the phone around to show me what he wants to look at, which is that was a game changer really when he got to that age, an age where he could do that. Um, it meant at least every day if we could have some engaging playtime even though it wasn't face to face and in a hundred years time they're going to look back and go oh my god that was so terrible people used to people used to sort of pretend the screen was them and they used to pretend to have real conversations whereas nowadays we have virtual 3d everything it's made it so much better (laughs) oh god yeah Yeah. i mean this is all interesting because it's wrapped around this context of um I think you said you know the two most common questions you get asked and uh they were how do you make it work financially and what was the other one i can't remember yeah how do i make it how do i get sponsorship and how you know those two are usually wrapped in one and then yeah how's my adventures changed and my challenges changed as i become a, a father and i think that is really interesting because you know i don't want to speak on behalf of the people who've asked those questions but i'm guessing that it's either there's an element of envying the lifestyle or curious as to how they could bring more of that world into their lifestyle because it is brave, like it's hard, you know, not knowing where the next book deal is coming from or, and, you know, woe is me, get my violin out, you know, look at my lovely life, it's so difficult. But, I mean, to be honest, I can't even pretend that it's hard, <laughs> really. Like the training's hard, what I do, the training's really hard, it's long. Um I, I happen to enjoy it. The actual challenges, the sporting events, adventures, whatever you want to call them, they're, they're really hard. They're super tough. And if they weren't tough, you know, I've chosen the wrong one. Um, but, you know, I'm really lucky. I think I've absolutely nailed a work-life balance. You know, as I said, I'm around a lot when I need to be around. Uh, you know, I'm at home all day. I'm up, this is my shed in the garden. Caroline's in the house. So we have walkie talkies. <laughs> like, cup of tea, love. Um, it's great. So, you know, I think I'm, in, I'm involved as, as a father. Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky. 
I'm able to pay my my mortgage. Like in any sport, when you start winning, when you start achieving the goals you set out to achieve, you attract more sponsors, people, more people buy your books. And, you know, at the moment, financially, that's covering my costs. You know, I, I'm, I don't need lots of money to, to have a good life. I lived on a boat for ages, which I loved. I would still live on a boat today if I could have a garden. I love my gardening. I love my little allotment in the garden. Um, and I love making stuff in, in, a, in a workshop. So I have loads of tools. And those two things you don't often get with boat life, um, which is a shame because I loved living on a boat, um, which I did for three years. And, um, you know, I am very lucky. And I think all most people in the world of sport probably have a similar outlook on it. You know, the 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 benefits and the lifestyle you lead, yes, you train a lot, but it's all worth it in the end. Um, you know, so I no, I'm definitely I can't even pretend to go, oh my life's really tough because actually I'm really, really lucky. You know, but it's it's been on purpose. I've built the life that I live. You know, I've I've actively chosen to to lead it. I've not bought a very expensive house you know so we my wife and I decided to really sort of buy a really affordable house it's a bungalow in North Wales so that we didn't have a huge mortgage you know I have no credit card debts and I've not gone and spent too much um and because as in any sport you do know it can come to an end very quickly you know break a leg um, or worse, um, and your sporting career can, can really come to an end quickly. So, you know, we've been, I've been very frugal, which has helped, um, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, no, there's no, no, no violence aside. <laughs> I think it might be a surprise. It's a surprise to me that you're a kind of nesting home bird with an allotment and a workshop. I think that's, I'm uh, fascinated by the balance. So I need things to do. And I just have to have, and I need to, I love growing my vegetables and I love making stuff. I'm into knife making. I love making my knives. Um, I, I love writing. I like, I like just doing stuff. I love, the, we bought this bungalow off a 95 year old man. So, you know, needs a lot of work and I love doing that. And I, I built a big fire pit area. We live on the side of a hill. So I had to dig into the hill. I had to move 40 tons of soil by buckets because I it was the side of the hill I couldn't put a put a wheelbarrow up it. Uh so that took me four months and um yeah, no, I love it. I love to do, you know, when I'm at home, I love being at home. Um and I love doing all these little projects. Um my next project is building a staircase up to the fire pit. <laughs> so that's that's on my to do list. Um and make my, my raised beds a little bit higher because the slugs are getting in. Ah damn you. So um, uh, I just have to do stuff. And if I can do stuff out, outdoors and outside, that's all the better for me, you know. Yeah. It sounds like you've got it pretty sussed. You seem, yeah. For now, I often I, sense... I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. And, and I, when, whenever I meet up with Kenton Cool, we have the same chats like, when's it going to end? Like it's, it's, it feels like it's going to end next year. And then all of a sudden, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do anymore. And we always sort of go like, what's plan B? <laughs> and him and I always have these like, it always ends up being a PE teacher. You know, that's, I think, our plan B. Like, when it, when's it going to end? You know, he's like, you know, I don't know, when am I going to not be able to do high altitude mountaineering anymore? 
you know, that's his thing. You know, and I'm like, when am I not going to be able to break records anymore? And uh, yeah, so far it's still going. Uh, I'm gonna ride the wave until I can't, and then I'll become a PE teacher. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things to do. Oh, I can't wait. Good luck to the kids I have in my class because I'm gonna be pulling out. Don't you know what I've done? <laughs> <laughs> I swam the length of Britain once. You can definitely swim across this 25-meter pool. Come on, get in there. Get your reps. <laughs> I'm going to be so bad. Your poor children. <laughs> um, all right, well, I'll pull it to a close. We're not going to go full Joe Rogan, but we're definitely into longer adventure podcast territory, which is nice. Good. Brilliant. Um, so a bit of an odd one. I On your website, you've got – oh, no, I'm going to do another one as well. You've got all the cool things you've done on your website. They're there. They should be there. That's obvious. You've also got your hiccups. Yeah. So you kind of proudly publish them. Are you yeah. are you scared of failure or are you just accepting of it? Or No, I am scared of it. I think if, if you, certainly what I do, if, you, if you're ready to accept the failure, then that gives you a reason to quit. So no, I'm super scared of it. Uh, yeah, I hate it. I, oh, even that bit of my website, I, don't, I never want to go and look at it. Every now and then, Caroline's like, oh, have you updated your website lately? You know, there was that thing that didn't work out a few months ago. You need to add that to the hiccup. So I'm like, ah, ah. Um, <laughs> no, I hate it. But it's good to learn from it. So the reason I put it up there was, so often I found when I would go and talk at schools and go and talk at, at big events, people would come up to me and they they thought I was able to do what I did because I was an outlier. So an outlier is someone who's able to do something because they have certain things that you don't have. And it could be it could be financial, it could be biological, it could be time, you know, whatever. And often a lot of it, so financial was one of the big things. People presumed I just had loads of cash and I was just able to go off and do these things. Um, but no, I everything I've done, I've done with other people's money basically it's not it's not my I don't have my own money my parents don't have money I've managed to work hard and get it funded through sponsorship everything I've done literally absolutely everything and also most stuff I've done haven't hasn't cost that much money my Europe ride was two thousand pounds you know to cycle across Europe um which you know is still money but it's not tens of thousands hundreds it's not sort of you don't need to be a multimillionaire to do that right um so that was one and the other one is you know, people thought maybe biologically I was just superhuman. And that's quite common for people to think that, you know, when you when you meet, you know, I'm not going to be super inspired by Usain Bolt because I know he's an outlier. You know, the reason he's the fastest man in the world is because he's the height he is and his muscle makeup <coughs> and that sort of thing. I'm five foot seven, <laughs> five foot eight on a warm day. Um, and, you know, Usain Bolt's an outlier, so there's no way in a million years will I believe I can run 100 meters really quickly, right? Um, with him as my inspiration, he inspires me in loads of other ways because his work ethic's amazing. If anyone hasn't seen I Am Bolt, the documentary, I really recommend you watch it, it's really good. Um, and he's really down to earth and he's a cool guy. Uh, on the documentary, I, I've never met him. Um, uh, so I wanted to. You know, and so people just presumed I was able to do all these things off the bat. But I wanted to say to people, actually, I've been tested. I've been to the same laboratories as 
Chris Froome, the Brownlee brothers, Jensen Button, Rory McIlroy, all these amazing sports sportsmen and women. And I've been put up against them. And I've come back as bang on average Joe. In fact, I have the salt deficiency I mentioned earlier where I lose more salt than the average person, which makes life a little bit harder from staying hydrated point of view. Um, so I wanted to show the things I've really messed up uh, and not really pulled off the ground and that people might not have heard of. So that's why I sort of put the hiccups there. Um, but certainly, you know, and even when I go through that section of the website, it kind of gives me panic attacks. Thinking back at that moment, it didn't work out. You know, like when I failed the, my length of Britain run the first time, when I failed the across Europe cycle the first time, you know, failing at becoming a travel photographer. You know, I'm gutted. I loved photography. I loved photography so much for 15 years. And then it just wore me down by making bad choices. So, yeah. So the hiccups, it's important. I think it's important to share things that haven't gone your way for, for people because it, it just makes it, makes the story authentic, right? Well, yeah, I get, I get, I'm very privileged in that I get to sit here and travel around and listen to lots of inspiring, amazing people tell incredible stories and talk about their views on things. And that is genuinely, genuinely inspiring. Cause I always feel like I, I feel, you know, oh, they're taller and faster. You know, I didn't get into yeah. sports till I was 20. What well, chance yeah, have I got? I, yeah, I was 30. So exactly. Well, yeah. Ace. All right, then you've got, you've set yourself a precedent for, brilliantly explaining sections of your website now so <laughs> the, the third thing you talk about is what you haven't done yet which i tend to avoid with the podcast because you know people haven't done it yet but yeah why why publish your dreams so i i i feel i i without sort of sounding like i'm a mean person or clickbait um not all the dreams are there <laughs> um there's some i'm keeping secret because i enjoy keeping them a secret and i also like in any sport you don't want to give away your ace cards um but there's some there that i i would love to do and and it's important for me to put them out there because it helps it keeps me accountable a little bit you know like i would love to live on an island for a year and Caroline would love to, too. So we're trying to work out how we can make that happen before kids have to go to school. So I've only got two more years. Uh, so that's running away. It might have to be when they leave school then. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's there's a few. And actually, you know what? I really do need to update that bit because there's a few other ideas I want to do um, later in life. Like, and I, you know, when I'm 60, 70, you know, uh, I think I yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I'm going to update that soon. But, um, yeah. Well, definitely. I am. Um, I loved when I was looking at it. I loved build a boat and row an ocean. Yeah, I love woodwork. I love my woodwork, and I'd love to build like an old school clinker rowing boat that was up to the challenge of rowing an Atlantic. Um, so it could it could self right and and whatnot. But um, yeah. But I lived in the Lake District, and there was a couple of amazing wooden boat builders still still operating. One down in Hawkshead, and I was like, "Oh, one day I'm going to do an internship there and work out how to make a boat out of wood." Oh, to be brilliant! Yeah, it's on the dream, definitely. Except I get seasick. Yeah, so from when I swam Britain, I I 
got like really bad tinnitus and like my balance is off. I get really bad vertigo. So since that swim, my vertigo got really bad uh, and, the, and the tinnitus is there, which makes me get seasick so quickly, um, which is annoying. So we'll see. We'll have to kind of work that out somehow, you know. Well, that's it. Working within your limits, I suppose there's a good lesson in there as well, eh? Yeah, totally. Totally. Everything is yeah. possible except me becoming a, a competitive jockey would not be possible. I don't know, 5'7". Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I am 72 kgs, though, which is way too heavy for, yeah. uh, for that. Or a sumo wrestler. Probably couldn't be that either. Or basketball player. Probably couldn't be that either, biologically. So um, I think you and I would have been cast as dwarfs in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there is a there's a Game of Thrones character that people keep saying I look like. <laughs> I don't, don't know which one. There's some ginger guy in the Game of Thrones. Um with a beard we all we all we all get classed in fact i learned I, whenever i meet some other guy with a big ginger beard mate not so much now but certainly when i was doing my discovery channel when i had my discovery channel shows aired every time i met someone with a big ginger beard they're like man people keep thinking i'm you <laughs> <laughs> i was like take it mate if it works for you probably doesn't but if it does take it Hey, <laughs> <laughs> right i'm gonna draw this party to a close um I always ask people two questions at the end. Um, interpret them however you see fit. Okey-dokey. The first is what scares you? Um, so balloons that have the potential of popping, <clears throat> that scares me a little bit. Um, a balloon on its own is fine, but if you if someone had a balloon in their hand and came up to my head and hit my ear, not happy, not, I don't like that. Um, I'm not scared of heights, but I do get vertigo. So there's no, so the scare of height, the fear of heights is acrophobia. Vertigo is just the dizziness, but it makes being high a bit uncomfortable, even though there's no fear. But I guess if we, let's go philosophical on this one, I'm scared of just leading a unfulfilled, ordinary life. And I don't know what it is. I think a psychologist would probably have a field day with me. This fact, the fact that I'm just, just so determined to lead a unique and interesting life. And that's in everything, like genuinely the car I want to drive, the food I want to eat, you know, a bungalow's pretty unique and interesting. <laughs> it's not the dream house. I would live on a boat, like genuinely, I love it. Or I'd live in in some, like a lighthouse. Like if I had, if I could just tomorrow turn my house into something, my house into something, it would probably be a lighthouse. Um, we do live on the top of the hill, so it may even have a purpose. But uh, yeah, like genuinely, and I don't know why. I don't know why I just have this real desire to just lead a unique and interesting life. Um, and and yeah, Caroline sometimes hates it because she thinks I'm often trying too hard to just to be different. But I'm like, it's in me. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so what would yeah. what would the psychologist say? Uh, that I'm probably trying to impress. So, uh, my peers from when I was a kid and I was ginger and I was bullied the whole time. Probably that. <laughs> and there's probably some truth in that, really. Uh, and, and in fact, the fact I'm glossing over it now is probably even more testament to it. So if anyone would like to study my brain, I'm all up for it. <laughs> but look, look, here we are. It's very progressive in 2021. We've got, uh, we've got a big, roughly tufty bearded white dude talking about his insecurities. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, you know, bring it on. Why not? So, 
Last question, promise. What brings you hope? Lots. I think the world is very hopeful. I think, as I said earlier, it's the fringes that screen the, 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 the horrible stuff. But I, I think what brings me hope now, actually, is seeing how amazing the, the future generation is. You know, I go and do a lot of talks at schools, not face-to-face now, but I used to. Uh, seeing, you know, some of my, <clears throat> my friends' kids are a bit older than my kids. They are so amazing, man. Kids nowadays are super intelligent and really, I think they're going to fix all the mess ups that our generation have done. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope that the future, the future generations are intelligent, thoughtful, kind, are going to want to look after the planet and are hopefully going to take care of decrepit old granddads one day and listen to their sob stories about how they once swam the length of Britain. <laughs> that gives me hope. Excellent. Very good. Ace, right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, mate. Catch up soon. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is a Terra Incognita production. If you want to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.